This episode includes descriptions of violence and discussion regarding the misgendering of victims. This is The Fall Line. She was experiencing the typical issues that most folks in her situation were facing and still face today. You know, she was having disruption in employment, access to good resources. I mean, you know, if it weren't for her retirement check, I'm not sure that she would not have been on the street at the time that this event occurred. Jacksonville, Florida. It's situated in the northeastern part of the state, along the St. Johns River. Jacksonville was, and is, a military town. That began with the French invasion of Tamuqua Territory, and then the establishment of Fort Caroline. Today, the area is home to multiple Marine and Navy facilities, and one of the largest military populations in the United States. Jacksonville was home to a woman named Terri Ann Summers, too. She'd spent 22 years in the Navy and had retired as a lieutenant commander. For years, she'd lived with her spouse and child in the city, but midlife had brought a lot of changes. In 2001, she was 51 years old, and she was separated and on her way to divorce. She also had a teenage son from her second marriage, but no custody. In 2001, Terry was living with a roommate in Murray Hill Heights in Jacksonville. They rented a little place on Day Avenue. The house was a split level with a detached garage and a short chain-link fence lining the property. And there was a park only a few hundred yards away. According to local writer Tim Gilbert, that little park in Jacksonville doesn't have a name. If you look it up online, pictures show a wide, flat expanse dotted with palm trees and evergreens and log posts that mark the property line at regular intervals. On the night of December 12, 2001, Terry Ann Summers arrived home from work. Though she'd struggled to find employment since her retirement, she'd finally gotten a stable job with the U.S. Department of Labor. She often worked late into the evening, and that night was no exception. As she arrived home, she stopped at her mailbox and then pulled up the driveway and parked. As she exited the driver's side door, she was shot from behind, and she fell, still holding her mail. Her purse hit the ground. According to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, Terry Ann's body was found at approximately 9 p.m., and neighbors later reported having heard gunshots about an hour before. But there was no robbery. The incident report lists the following. Assailant unknown. Relationship unknown. Homicide investigation continues. Terry Ann Summers was well-known in Jacksonville, in activist circles, and in the LGBTQ community. She was known for involvement in mentorship and served on various committees. She was also involved in anti-discrimination work, including protesting Winn-Dixie Grocery Chain, and that's headquartered in Jacksonville. When she had free time, she spent it on the West Side, in neighborhood hubs of LGBTQ businesses and social life. Just weeks before she died, Terri Ann had attended a Jacksonville event for the Transgender Day of Remembrance, 
That was November 20, 2001. The next year, in 2002, her own name would be included in that memorial. Her friends would gather there to speak it. One of those friends was Carrington Rusty Mead, who we interviewed for this episode. Rusty, a lawyer and longtime activist, was involved in Terry Ann's life and, after her death, her case. You'll be hearing from him throughout this episode. In August of 2002, eight months after Terry Ann Summers was shot, 28-year-old Deasha Andrews, another Jacksonville area woman, was shot. Her name would also be memorialized during the 2002 Transgender Day of Remembrance. Diasha was found in her car in the morning hours of August 8, 2002. Terry Ann had been shot from behind. Diasha was shot in the head at close range, likely by someone sitting in her car. Like Terry Ann Summers, Diasha Andrews' case would not be solved that year or the next, or to this day, 18 years after she was killed. The cases of Terry Ann Summers and Diasha Andrews were reported as unrelated, and as far as we can tell, that's true. The women didn't know each other and were in different parts of town and found in different circumstances. Terry Ann was a 51-year-old white woman, separated and had children, and Diasha, a 28-year-old black woman, unmarried and without children. Diasha was a sex worker, and Terry Ann in IT support. Terry Ann's murder was originally framed as a hate crime. Diasha's didn't get enough press to have any real framing at all. But they are connected in that they died in Jacksonville. Jacksonville, named for Andrew Jackson, a town where Axe Handle Saturday took place, where, in August of 1960, 200 white residents attacked civil rights protesters with baseball bats and axe handles. Terry Ann and Diasha lived and died as transgender women in the Deep South. That inevitably affected the perception of their murders, and perhaps the way their deaths were investigated, too. We've talked about the lack of cultural understanding of even basic cultural discussion of trans issues on our podcast before, in Season 4. That's when we covered the murders of Tracy Thompson, Robert Martin, and the unidentified woman known as Julie Doe. In 2020, the discussion around gender and identity has expanded. But in 2001 and 2002, the Transgender Day of Remembrance was only a few years old. It was established in 1999. Support and understanding and awareness are beginning to unfold now, but dangers are still very much present. And so it seems are higher murder rates among young Black trans women. Studies have had difficulty tracking data on death, life expectancy, and murder rates in comparison to the cisgender population. And according to the American Journal of Public Health in 2017, quote, findings suggest that transgender people overall may not face a higher risk of being murdered than do cisgender people, but that young transgender women of color almost certainly face a higher chance of being murdered. So in Jacksonville, Florida, we start with Terry Ann, and Diasha. We are lucky enough to have extensively interviewed Rusty Mead, Terry Ann's friend, but Diasha's chosen family have been much harder to find. However, 
Rusty is familiar with Diosh's case as he was asked to advise as a community liaison during the investigation of her homicide. As in the case of most victims covered on the fall line, we know much less about Diosha Andrews than we should. There are a scant few articles, an obituary under a name that she did not use, and a coroner's report, and that's not enough to reconstruct a life. The longest article concerning Diosha's case, a few paragraphs, was printed in the Watermark, a regional LGBTQ newspaper that has been around since 1994. In an archived August-September edition, we found a short piece that provided these details. Quote, On the morning of August 8th, a man walking his dog along Spring Grove Road on the north side found 28-year-old Diasha Andrews slumped over in her car. The article describes the area as, quote, violent, with, quote, several murders having been committed in the recent past. And the reporting is mostly focused on Jacksonville's statement that Diosha's murder was not being pursued as a hate crime. This was shared with the newspaper via Rusty Mead, who's noted in the article as a, quote, GBLT liaison for the department. There are no further updates that we can find. But when we spoke to Rusty, he was able to tell us a little more. He said that there was some sense of who had killed Diosha, and it hadn't been a robbery or a random shooting. As is the case with many women, trans and cisgender, Diasha was likely the victim of intimate partner violence. According to a 2015 report by the National Center for Transgender Equality, a survey of trans women indicated that 68% of the respondents had experienced partner violence. And based on CDC survey data from 2018, that's about twice the rate reported by women overall. At the time of her death, Diasha had been involved in what Rusty described as survival sex work, and Diasha was also facing home insecurity and was spending nights with friends or sometimes in her car. Her friends, who were later questioned, were also involved in sex work, and there's some indication that, while they wanted to help, their witness statements were treated more like interrogations into their own lives, their possible drug use, and their employment. This much, though, became clear. Diasha had been dating a man who didn't want their relationship to become public. It's unknown what his precise situation was, but her friends thought that he might have been married, maybe with kids. They didn't know his name, because Diasha only referred to him with a term of endearment, but they knew she was ready to take their romance to the next level. If what her friends suspected is true, then the man got into a car with Diasha that night and shot her multiple times at point-blank range. He left her there, slumped over the steering wheel, sometime in the late night or early morning hours. We can't find anything further on her case. If there were leads, they did not become public. In that same Watermark article, it's noted that two other trans women had been murdered that very same week in a double homicide in Washington, D.C. Yukia Davis, who was 18, and Stephanie Thomas, who was 19, were sitting in a Toyota Camry. Another car pulled up, and a man opened fire on them. Their case remains unsolved, too. Noted reporter Monica Roberts, who blogs under the name Transgrio, reflected on their cold case in 2016. She wrote that their lives, quote, were extinguished before they even had a chance to live them. Both of them would be approaching their 30s right now. What dreams and aspirations were they never able to fulfill? 
what kind of contributions to our society did we lose because somebody hated Stephanie and Yukia enough to kill them for openly living their trans lives, end quote. Stephanie and Yukia joined Diasha Andrews and Terry Ann Summers as four of the 24 victims honored at the 2002 Transgender Day of Remembrance. When looking into cases, you might ask, what makes a hate crime? How narrow should the definition be? According to a 2019 report from the Human Rights Campaign, that's part of the issue with gathered statistics on murders of trans and gender nonconforming people. They point out that hate crimes may be undercounted, that a homicide connected to one's gender identity, whether or not it comes at the hands of an intimate partner, should be classified as a hate crime. In fact, they wrote that, quote, proper characterization of a crime as one based on gender identity is an essential tool that can be used to address anti-transgender violence. In Diasha's case, if she was killed by a partner, then, based on what Rusty told us, it would be a hate crime. Transphobia was likely a driving force. But because intimate partner violence is less likely to be classified as such, her case wouldn't have been counted. Now, according to Rusty, Terry and Summer's death was viewed as a hate crime, at least in the earlier portion of the investigation. That's likely one of the reasons, along with race and her military service, that her death has gotten more press. Part of that early sense came from the involvement of Equality Florida, a regional civil rights group. They'd been alerted right away of Terry Ann's death. And Terry Ann was an organizer in Jacksonville and had been involved in a number of public campaigns and boycotts and community action groups. She was well-known, as we said, and that carried its own danger in Jacksonville. Eventually, it became apparent that there were other motives behind Terry Ann's murder. Eventually, Investigators even had a good idea who might have killed her. But that didn't resolve her case. To examine Terry Ann's case, you need to know more about her life. And our best source is Rusty Mead, her friend in life and her advocate after death. Rusty first met Terry Ann Summers in the late 1990s. It was a time when Rusty was going to law school and caring for his dying wife. It was an extraordinarily hard time. And he'd met Terry Ann during an extraordinarily hard time in her life, too. They became acquainted on the west side of Jacksonville, where they both frequented LGBTQ plus friendly establishments. I met her actually at one, the local bar over here on the west side. That was the local lesbian bar. And depending on, you know, who you talk to, it was either the first bar in town or it was the, you know, Six second bar by you know six months in town. Definitely, definitely a bit of a dive. You know, poor ventilation, bunch of chain smoking. You know, um, working class. You know, lesbians mainly habituating in there, and then the you know the occasional you know uh, trans woman would be in there. So we didn't have a lot of trans folks who were coming out to the bars at that point. But you know, um, Carrie Ann, I think was. She was probably the first one I actually met who was sitting at the bar because, you know, she identified as a lesbian, so she would hang out at the lesbian bar. What was your first impression of her? You know, it was the first time I'd actually had a, an opportunity to, you know, meet anybody, you know, on a personal level that was, you know, who identified as um, trans on any level, you know. 
other than my, you know, brief interactions with performers, you know, that had been, you know, in the bars. So it was first time I actually got to talk to anybody. Um, and uh, she was friendly, you know, she's affable and uh, had a good sense of humor. Um, we immediately connected over our, our um, shared Navy background. And, um, you know, she was telling me about how she was a Mustang. She used to be a commander in the Navy. And so I was pretty impressed by that. Here she is starting out as enlisted and ending just a rank below where most officers would end up after 20 years. After Terry Ann retired from the military, she took stock of her life and knew she could not continue to live as she had been. When she came out to her wife as transgender, her wife no longer wanted to continue the marriage. And according to Rusty, Terry Ann had not wanted to end things. But their interactions became strained, especially around custody of and contact with their child. Terry Ann continued to pay alimony and child support, most of her retirement benefits from the military, but she dropped the checks off at her old home's mailbox with no contact with her former spouse. Both of these situations were fraught. Terry Ann had trouble generating income, and she missed her family so much. She'd gone from an established career and family into single life and frequent unemployment. When she retired, from what I read, she was having difficulty getting work with her education and like job experience. Yes, she was. We talked a lot about that, that, you know, on paper, you know, she looked wonderful, you know, she looked great. And she had just changed her, well, she had, she had just changed her name like a year before she passed away. Um, but yeah, she was having some real difficulties getting employment because, you know, on paper, if her name wasn't on there, she was definitely, you know, hireable and definitely was not going to have any issues with getting hired anywhere, right? So, you know, that should not have been a problem for her. However, she kept, you know, she'd get jobs and then, you know, she'd lose her jobs. She couldn't maintain them there um, because, you know, she had problems at work. Was some of the difficulty maintaining jobs at different places that her coworkers were not accepting of her? Yeah, I mean, there was always constant drama. It was the usual drama between, you know, her and the coworkers and the supervisors and stuff like that. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, a time, you know, this is 20 years ago when people were not real familiar with the issue. It wasn't, you know, you know, the first time they heard about it was when she showed up on the scene. And so they, you know, the prejudices would come out and they would, you know, act like she was a man wearing a dress to work, you know, and, you know, and be really nasty with her. She wouldn't say anything about it because she didn't want to, like, you know, draw attention to herself. You know, she was just finding it hard to find a place where she fit in where people didn't care about the fact that, you know, she was born, you know, as a neonatal male and was identifying as female. I mean, it wasn't hard to tell who she used to be. And which, you know, made it fully problematic because she couldn't really access the, the resources she needed in order to be who she really was. Because at the time, the VA, you know, she didn't call Well, she wasn't in the VA system because she was doing TRICARE and the TRICARE didn't offer hormonal, you know, um, treatment for gender dysphoria at the time. So she didn't have access to the resources for it. You know, the accentuated issue, she wasn't able to see her son because her 
soon-to-be be ex-wife was very hostile towards her and wouldn't have anything to do with her and would not allow the, the boy to be anywhere around her, right? And the, she had some minimal contact with the boy via telephone, but, you know, that was about, you know, the extent of it because her son was a bit uncomfortable with it and uh, because of how mom was responding to it she knew that if she you know went back to her old life that she could easily get these jobs yeah you know but you know and that's the only time I ever saw her upset you know when she was talking to me about her experiencing you know her experiencing you know discrimination and facing what was happening at work I mean she would be like you know, Rusty, she, you know, I could get these jobs if I just went back to, you know, my old life. She goes, but I can't do that because I was just so angry. She goes, you know, you know, she was, cause she told me that, you know, her own sister like really enjoyed her and, and, you know, loved her so much more now. She goes, we get along so well now because I'm not this angry person running around, you know, being pissed off all the time and being in, you know, a big asshole. She goes, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to go back to that. Rusty told us that Terry Ann felt called to address inequality, including events that were happening outside of Florida. As we mentioned at the top of the show, she was involved in the picketing and boycott of the Winn-Dixie grocery chain. She'd heard about the Louisiana case of a former Winn-Dixie employee, Peter Euler, who'd been fired from his job for what was widely described as, quote, cross-dressing. And just a note, we don't know how Peter identifies in 2020, but... He expressed via one ACLU publication in 2000 that he, him pronouns are appropriate for press coverage. He also identified himself at that time as part of the transgender community. Apparently, Peter, a truck driver, often dealt with rumors about his sexuality, specifically that he was gay. Peter, who did not identify as gay, asked to speak to his supervisor about it. During that meeting, he explained to a supervisor that he occasionally wore feminine clothing in his free time, and he was fired for sharing that information. According to case records, Peter, backed by the ACLU, sued Winn-Dixie Corporation for, quote, engaging in sex stereotyping in violation of state and federal laws banning sex discrimination. Per the Associated Press, Winn-Dixie said they fired him because of possible negative repercussions. They were, quote, concerned about what effects his cross-dressing would have on customers if it became known that he worked for the chain. Peter's case was taken up by a number of trans activists in the United States, and Terri Ann, in the same city as Winn-Dixie's headquarters, wanted to do her part. Rusty remembers Terri Ann's activism around the case. Yeah, she was pretty pissed off about that. We were all were, actually. <laughs> I couldn't go to... She, she was out there picking the hell out of Winn-Dixie, that was for sure. I mean, it really was a mirror in some ways of the difficulty she was struggling through. She was just attempting to go to work. That was all she wanted to do. And, you know, this, the gentleman that worked for Winn-Dixie was having the same situation, just trying to work. I think that's kind of where we, where we kind of bonded more about because we're, 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 we're both kind of, of the sort that, you know, rights are rights and rights should be, you know, protected. And, 
Um, if somebody's not being treated right, let's get out there and raise some hell and make sure they're going to get treated the right way. Right. And so, yeah, that, that really put a bee in her bonnet. And she's like, let's go out there and, you know, demonstrate against these people and get the hell out of them, you know. And, uh, you know, at the time when Dixie wasn't worried about, you know, damaging their reputations because, you know, I guess they, you know, well, you know, we live in an area where it was okay to be a bigot. It still is. So, um, you know, about certain things. Although we did recently have the Confederate statue uh, removed yesterday morning, actually, from downtown, right across the street from our city hall. She would have been really happy about that, too, I'm sure. So, um, you know, so Jacksonville, you know, definitely I call it the armpit of the South. You know, it's, uh, it's a bit ugly and it stinks sometimes, you know, and it's uh, uninhabitable, at, you know, at moments. You know, there's things that were kind of stuck, you know, in, in the past on. And Jacksonville's always been a little slow to, to keep up with the times. Peter Euler's case would ultimately be decided a little under a year after Terry Ann Summers' murder. A United States district judge ruled against Euler, stating that he was not part of a protected class and thus not covered under Title VII. Court records indicate that Peter Euler was described as having a, quote, gender disorder. As for Peter, he and his wife, Shirley, would go on to report long-term effects of the dismissal from Winn-Dixie, including the loss of health insurance, money issues, and high levels of stress. Terry Ann wouldn't see that judgment, but Peter Euler's case wasn't the only issue that had Terry Ann's attention that December. As you might recall, her house was very near a park, and at that park, there was regular drug activity. There were a number of young men and adolescents who hung around the unnamed recreation area, and Terry Ann reported to her friends that drug sales went on all day. Terry Ann repeatedly called the sheriff, but she also went out in her yard to directly confront the people that she viewed as a threat to neighborhood safety. Rusty remembers trying to talk to Terry Ann about her tactics, but to little avail. Well, you know, she was being a sailor, you know. She was, you know, out there being rough mouth with them, and then they would threaten her, and then she would, you know, mouth off on them back and, you know, brandish her weapon. You know, she'd walk them, you know, she had a fenced in front yard, so she used to walk, you know, that of the house she was renting. So she used to walk up and down inside the fence. She's like, you know, Rusty, I can do what I want. I can I can have that gun on my hip and they can see it, you know. Um, I can do what I want because I'm on my own property. You know, she said, you know, I call the sheriff up and they don't want to come out there. You know, because they run off when the sheriff shows up. And she'd been calling the sheriff on them. And I guess she did it enough that the sheriff's office was getting pissed at her too, you know, because they were tired of coming out there answering the calls because of course they'd come out there and then, you know, the kids would run off or if they had didn't, there was nothing that, you know, they could do to prove that they were actually doing something out there. And, uh, and that had been a problem in the parks, you know, citywide. I mean, cause at the time, we had city council members who kept petitioning for parks, especially in the Northwest Quadrant and stuff like that, where they were having issues with um, drug trafficking. And the residents were like, we don't need another park because, you know, the drug dealers are going to take it over and we're going to have drug problems out of our yards. And we don't want that. So a lot of the, you know, you know, a lot of the poor kids wanted places to play, but a lot of, a lot of the, you know, 
you know, their parents didn't want those parents, those sparks there because they didn't want to attract the drug dealers. And so that had been like a never ending kind of circling problem, you know, that was triangulating in the Northwest area. And this neighborhood was like at the, you know, kind of like on the fringe of that area. And we're talking about a, a neighborhood filled with people who are being treated disparately to begin with. Although Terry Ann's neighbors may not have wanted their children in unsafe parks, they weren't necessarily on Terry Ann's side either. She was wielding a gun openly in her front yard and engaging in regular shouting matches with the young men and boys who were at the park. The entire situation was likely frightening and disruptive to people who were already living in an area with fewer city amenities, less support, and a law enforcement presence that would likely be viewed as not protective or preventative. No one is sure if there was a specific interaction that sparked the events of December 12, 2001. It was a day much like any other in Terri Ann's life. Getting home far after nightfall, checking her mail. Likely that night she was thinking of her roommate, who was recovering from surgery. Terri Ann had actually called to check on her earlier in the day. But sometime soon after she pulled her car into the area of her attached garage, she was shot from behind. When we spoke to Rusty Mead, he talked to us about how he received the news of Terry Ann's death. So I was napping, and I got a call from one of my friends, and he was the president of uh, Jasmine, the Jacksonville Area Sexual Minority Youth Network at the time. And he called me up to let me know that um, Terry Ann had been shot the evening before, and they suspected it was because she was transgender, shot in her driveway, and that we'd we'd been having some trouble in the area with some really loud bigots, you know, making threats and stuff like that, and through different conduits and such. And so there was a concern that those of us in perceived leadership positions might get targeted. So it was not just the immediate loss of your friend. It was also you, you know, having to all of a sudden be aware that you could be in like mortal danger. Yeah. You know, but of course too, you know, uh, I've always maintained some air of cockiness. And so I, you know, I knew I had guns in the house and I was going to shoot back if I needed to. And then, you know, I got more information later. You know, I asked my friend, I said, so what happened? And he said, well, I don't know. She just got shot in her driveway. So then I called somebody else I knew um, about that might know more. And then they told me what had happened was that she was in the driveway and got shot while she was checking the mail. I went over there to go check it out. And um, the sheriff's line was there. I immediately was identified as somebody who was close to her. And so they were talking to me to find out what was happening, you know, what was going on, you know, what happened. Um, and uh, I said, you know, I didn't really know. I said that she'd not been threatened before. I said, but I knew she was having trouble with the guys in the park. And her house was kind of catty corner to the park there. Um, and then they said, yeah, we heard that too. I think within about 48 hours, we all realized that it had more to do with the fact that she was troublemaking with the guys in the park than it had anything to do with her transition. However, her roommate contacted Equality Florida right away because 
she, you know, uh, just decided to um, contact them and tell them that Terry Ann was shot because she was transgender, right? So um, the crime scene, I don't think that the, the kids who shot her knew that she was transgender at the time. I don't think they discovered it until after they shot her. Because it looked like, you know, they had pulled her wig off, I guess, after after uh, she was shot. Uh, and then they kind of ran away. Witnesses kind of said that they appeared to be startled and ran off. I mean, I think if it had anything to do with it at all, I think she was more I think she was more targeted because of the trouble she was making with the guys that were trying to sell drugs in the park. Right. She was interrupting. She was interrupting their business flow. Even as Rusty began to understand the possible motive behind Terry Ann's murder, he also grew concerned by some of what he saw in the initial investigation. Though he didn't and doesn't think that her gender identity was directly related to her murder, he had concerns about both the treatment of the crime scene and the way that Terry Ann was discussed by those who were on the scene. The sheriff's office, I mean, you have to think about, I mean, there was a big fear about that afterwards because. You know, they were sloppy about it. They were insensitive about it. Um, you know, they were standing at the, it was Christmas time, you know, and they're standing there along the, you know, the tape. And there was officers standing there laughing and stuff like that, which got a lot of people in the community upset because they thought they were making jokes about, you know, her being a guy in a dress or something like that. You know, they were being insensitive to the victim while she lay there. They thought that that wasn't, you know, okay. And I addressed that issue with them. I wound up doing my own investigation so that I could figure out whether or not, number one, if it was a hate crime, and number two, if the sheriff's office's investigation had been influenced by the, the character of the victim, right? But do I think that her being, you know, transgender may have affected some of how they, you know, how they viewed it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I never got the indication that they were biased about it because she was transgender. Um, I think that I got more of an indication they were a bit more apathetic about the situation because there had been a lot of crimes in the area at the time. And I think this was just one of many that they were trying to solve. We almost got shut out of the investigation, but the sheriff's office agreed to, they said, if we, if we chose one person, that they would communicate with that individual and I got chosen and they had a town hall and they came to uh, one of the local churches to the fellowship hall over at St. Luke's MCC church. And we had a township meet, a town hall meeting there about, about about a month after it had occurred. And I shared all information that I had gathered with them and get, and turned that over to them. Um, in fact, actually they left behind one of their evidence bags at the scene because I went over there the next, the following day after that to go talk to the roommate more at length and look around the house to see if there's any other indications of evidence. So, so I had to call up Frank McAsee, who was the chief of homicide at the time, and say, "Hey, your forensics tech screwed up and left evidence behind in one of the evidence bags." What What did you find? What was in that bag? Um, the wig and some mail. So he hopped on. He hopped on that right away. Had somebody come over and pick that up, and um, and he told me that you know he didn't believe that it had compromised 
the investigation. At this point, I don't know if anybody, if the evidence is still there, if they still have it, if they've tried to do any kind of, you know, DNA forensics on it at this point, you know, because at the time, you know, DNA forensics was still in its infancy. I mean, at this point, I mean, maybe you can get some touch DNA off of it. I don't know. I mean, touch DNA doesn't last that long, but, you know, it'd be nice to see if they'd have it, you know, redone. But now, I mean, if you know that, you know, the male and, and wig were left behind in their right. forensics bag. And her roommate told me she hadn't, you know, that that she opened it, but she didn't touch anything inside. So that's good. But, I mean, you're like, you know, if you're trying to, if, let's say you did, you, let's say we did the touch DNA. Let's say that we, we got something off of there and we got some foreign DNA that didn't belong to anybody who otherwise would have a reason to have their DNA on that, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody pops up in the system. Yeah, but the chain of custody has been disturbed. Right. That was another issue Terri Ann's friends faced. They knew that Terri Ann was buried under her dead name, even though she legally changed it to Terri Ann Summers. To this day, they don't know where Terri Ann was buried, not the city, not the state. They weren't allowed to attend the funeral or the interment. Rusty has tried to locate the grave, but hasn't had any luck. So Terry Ann's friends held their own memorial near Christmas of 2001. And according to Rusty, Terry Ann's father and some siblings attended the event and were able to speak with the friends who'd meant so much to their daughter and sister. Local press also included some coverage of the event. The outlet Gay Today spoke to a number of the mourners and published an article quoting Cindy Watson, who was then the executive of the Jacksonville Area Sexual Minority Youth Network, or Jasmine. Cindy Watson told the reporter, quote, Terry Ann unified this community. I've never seen anyone with her energy or her drive. Also quoted was Vanessa Edwards of the National Transgender Advocacy Coalition. She said, quote, Terry Ann was an activist activist. She didn't get a lot of national notice, but the true measure of an activist is not how much press you get, it's how effective you are. Terry Ann was effective, end quote. Gay Today also reported that Terry Ann's brother addressed the crowd by referencing the death of Matthew Shepard, a young gay man who was murdered in 1998. Terry Ann's brother told them, quote, the trials for Matthew Shepard's killers and the pain on the faces of Shepard's parents I never thought that a couple of years later, I'd be speaking before a room full of people at Terry Ann's memorial service and looking across the room and seeing that same look of pain on my father's face. We wish we could tell you about a similar service held for Diasha, but we weren't able to find record of one or anything other than an obituary filed under her dead name. Both Diasha and Terry Ann's case listings wait in the Jacksonville Sheriff's Unsolved Homicide Database, along with 1,500 other cold case murders. Of the two reports, only Terry Ann's includes a photo. Now, 19 years later, the story of Terry Ann Summers mostly exists in archives, though there have been retrospective articles in local and national press that reference her murder. Rusty Mead has stayed in the loop, but says that today, he doesn't see much hope of her case being solved. Apparently, investigators have a sense of who was likely involved, but the case has not substantially progressed since that December night in 2001. 
when Tarian was shot in her own driveway. What do you think would have to happen to see that? I think somebody would have to care enough to reopen the case. You know, and I think, I don't know that anybody cares enough to reopen that case. I mean, the whole thing, I mean, it was pretty painful. I don't know that there's a lot of people who who remember it that are left behind currently who would, you know, who would want to go back to all of that. Diasha Andrews' murder is just as cold and even less likely to be solved. Not unless someone out there can offer information that might point toward her killer, whether that be the name of the man she was seeing or knowledge that points to an altogether different scenario. Someone out there has information that could resolve both of these deaths. It's just a matter of attracting their attention. If you have any information regarding the murders of Terry Ann Summers or Diasha Andrews, please call the Jacksonville Sheriff at 904-630-0500 or First Coast Crime Stoppers at 904-398-3775. We'd like to thank the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Additional research by Haley Gray. Special content advisement by Anthony Redgrave of the Transdo Task Force. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fall Line merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store. Currently, our monthly donation is going to the Sovereign Bodies Institute. Please check our website's blog for other organizations we support and donate to, and which could use your support too. 